A 2021 study found that nearly 60% of Americans aged 18 to 34 do not believe the biblical accounts of the resurrection of Christ. Rebecca McLaughlin, the author of a book entitled Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, says this. Young adults are less likely to be cultural Christians than their parents or grandparents, partly because identifying as a Christian isn't seen as positively by folks outside the church as it once was. There's a a thing that's alive in America still, but is quickly dying. It's called cultural Christianity. Many here remember the days when most of the town went to church. And maybe you're, you're wishing that we could go back to those days, and I sincerely agree with you. I wish that the entire city of Alcoa would come to church and would come to know Christ. But we know that there were many over the years who attended church simply because it was the thing to do. You couldn't own a business without being part of the church. You you couldn't be an upstanding member in the society or the culture without being a, a member of the church. And so churches kept growing because that was the in for people. And the churches would grow and grow and grow. But then something happened. People realized that you can, in fact, do all of those things without being a member of the church. And so what happened? They left. Or at the very least, their children and then their grandchildren did not become part of a church. See, their children and grandchildren were not satisfied with Sunday school answers to the deep questions that they had about what the Bible says. I was a recipient of some of those answers where where I would ask hard questions. Why did God command his people to slaughter women and children in the towns, wipe the entire towns out? And the answers that I got were not good. And so they were dissatisfied. They see no need for the church because the church has not answered their questions. They grew tired of Christians being unable to answer the difficult parts of the Bible, so they moved on to something else that could help explain the existence of things like evil, the meaning of life. Now, even if it meant that they got no answer at all, it was better and more comforting than what they were hearing, which often was nothing. It's just a matter of repeating Bible lessons and and stories that they heard on a felt board. But those hard questions that they were asking for all of those years, they were asking these difficult questions about what does God do about evil? How can a loving God send someone to hell? How do I handle death and loss of my children or my spouse? Where is God in that? did Jesus rise from the dead? How can a man who has no heartbeat, no brain waves, spend a few days or a few nights in a cave wrapped and then all of a sudden come back to life? How does this happen? Well, this morning we're going to begin a study of 1 Corinthians 15. It's a, a lengthy chapter that discusses the resurrection on two fronts, the resurrection of Christ, but also the resurrection of those who follow him. Now, this may not satisfy skeptics, but the resurrection, whether people believe it or not, happened. And 
But we can't simply be satisfied with saying, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it. Now, I do believe that. I, I believe that the Bible is God's word. But for someone who does not believe that the Bible is God's word, that doesn't give a strong enough answer. Repeating it requires no intellectual exertion. In other words, it's an easy way out. Why is the resurrection necessary? How can a dead man rise from the dead? And what purpose does this have in my own life? These are the questions that you hear. How do you answer those? Well, this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, is perhaps the strongest and simplest presentation of the gospel that we found in all of the Bible. Paul has been preaching the gospel through his letters and through his presence to the church in Corinth for some time now. And Paul is doing what we try to do as, as followers of Christ, try to live a godly life but live a gospel-centered life. Now me as a pastor, I do my best and certainly each week is not always perfect or always well done. But I do my best to show how the entire Bible points to our need for a savior. And how we find that Savior in the message of the gospel. Now see, I didn't make this up. This is not something that they teach in seminary. This is not something that they say, here is the way to grow a church. Paul didn't make this up either. It's not a new thing. The pattern was given from Paul himself because he saw that and he experienced it in his own life. And we see this in the first two verses. They give us the truth of the resurrection. Now, as we study this, keep this in mind. The resurrection, the truth of the gospel and the resurrection go hand in hand, and they are the absolute essential building blocks for the rest of our faith. If you take these out, you have no faith. That's how vital and vitally important these are. Look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. See, the gospel is what saves us, but it's also what holds us together. Have you ever thought about it this way? We're saved from the penalty of our sin, made right with God, and we're united to him and to one another in the gospel. This is what Paul's been saying his entire letter, isn't it? If you are a true follower of Christ, cut out the foolishness, kill the sin in your life, and stand side by side together with everyone else in the battle. This is what his plea has been over and over. Cut the foolishness out in the church. Stand together arm in arm. And then in verse 2, Paul writes this. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The church in Galatia had departed from the gospel. They had abandoned the truth. The Corinthians weren't doing that. They were still clinging to the truth of the gospel, but they were putting themselves into danger. And Paul makes it clear that anyone who did not hold fast to the gospel that he had been preaching would not be saved. Now, some people don't like Paul. Even today, you hear these stories. Well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul does not like women. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't like these kind of people. Jesus was all about love, and Paul was all about control. I've heard this. But if you believe in the inspiration of the Bible, if you believe that God is the inspiration and God wrote every word of this, this is God breathed, if you believe that, 
then you must believe that every word is from God directly, whether Paul wrote it or Jesus spoke it. And so we have to then wrestle with, with what are these apparent contradictions when we see Jesus saying one thing that seems so cuddly. He, not everything that Jesus said was cuddly, certainly. Beware of that. And then Paul comes down with the heavy hand. How do we, how do we work those two together? The message that Paul is giving is not his message. The message that Paul is giving is the one true gospel. And denial of that, denial of what Paul is saying, is a denial of Christ himself. The Corinthians weren't moving away to another gospel. But Paul is concerned about their state. He says this, hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Meaning that he was worried that they were going to abandon the gospel. You may not have heard this, but, but in, in our circles we hear a lot of this. And talking to people who I grew up with, I hear a lot of this. It's a trendy term, but it's, it's called deconstruction. There, there is a, a trend that's happening, and I see it a lot, of people who deconstruct their faith. What it means is they're going back and thinking through everything that they say they once believed and they're tearing it down piece by piece by piece, ultimately to get to a point, hopefully for them, where religion is not necessary anymore or at least where the trappings of their faith are gone. And I'll be the first one to tell you, American evangelicalism has a whole lot of stuff that needs to be ripped apart. We have a lot of things that, that we do as believers that, that need to be removed or need to be dealt with and to address. But so many are going through this process and deciding that they are no longer Christians anymore. See, it's healthy to question what you believe. I think we ought to be doing that. I think we need to think more about why it is that we believe. Why do you believe in the resurrection? Why do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Why do you believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell? Why? Where do you get these things from, right? It's good to question what we've been taught. Are they biblical doctrines or are they things that are just socially and culturally or church-wise accepted? See, in verse 2, Paul is describing a situation where some who have claimed to be believers have given up, fallen away, or have just decided they're moving on to something new. I've used this example before, so forgive me, but, but just hear me out. Imagine that we go to someone's house for a, a Christmas party or a New Year's Eve party. And we're there with the dozens and dozens of our friends, and, and the food, it, it, there's so much food you can't even see the tabletop. Right? It's just completely covered. And we're piling food onto our plate, as good people should do, and we're stacking it up and eating way too much, as, again, good people should do. And then there's one person who comes in and pulls off a grape from the table and goes back into the other room and starts nibbling at the grape. Ten minutes later, that person comes back in and, 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 and takes a, a, a piece of bread and, and pulls the bread apart and takes a, a little morsel and goes back out and eats the piece of bread. Ten minutes later, that person comes in with a fork and goes to the ham and kind of twists the fork and pulls a, just a small portion of the ham off and goes back and eats it. What would you think about this person? Uh, assuming that they don't have an eating disorder or something else that's causing them to behave that way, if, if all things being equal, what would you think about this person? 
they don't understand how great the meal is, do they? You can't judge a meal by a piece of bread and a grape and a piece of ham. There's no way because you're missing out on so much more that's there, right? Eat and be full. No, I'm just going to nibble. If they only sat with us is what we'd think. If they only sat with us and feasted on the same food as we did, they would see and feel and taste what we have. They're nibblers. Churches everywhere are full of nibblers, aren't they? People who join us, people who come, people who taste, people who get a little bit here and a little bit there, but they're never really part of us. We've seen it. We've talked to people who years later after we haven't seen them, and they tell us that they've just given up on religion. They've given up on any, everything. They're atheistic or agnostic or they found some other religion that makes them feel good. They've outgrown Christianity. I've heard that. They deconstructed everything down to the base so they could build up and pick and choose what, from what religion or no religion. Whatever builds them up and whatever makes them feel good, that's what they've come to. They've seen and they've participated in what we do as a church, but they were never really part of the fellowship. More than that, they've heard the gospel. Maybe they've even preached it or proclaimed it, but they were never changed by it. They never believed that the power of God is the gospel. They never believed it. They didn't cling to it. It may have felt good for a time. It may have helped their life for a season, but did it change them? Did it change everything about them to go from a child of rebellion to a child of the king? Did they embrace that? Church, this is why I focus so much on gospel preaching. Every single week. It's not to get you saved every single week. Because if you're a follower of Christ, you are saved once and forever. That's not my aim. My aim is not to be the next Billy Graham. I'm, I'm not trying to preach a, an evangelistic sermon every week so that every week you come forward and you accept Christ every single week. We, we've seen that, right? We've seen people do that. That's not my goal. I preach the gospel so that we are reminded of our need for it. That we so desperately need the gospel. That without the truth of the gospel, we are Lost And verses 3 and 4 give us the content of this gospel. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is central to our faith. Without this, there is no Christianity. And I know I've mentioned this before, but if you can imagine in your, in your mind a, a pyramid with three levels, and this is kind of the theological triage, the, the order of importance, and so if you can imagine at the bottom of this, this pyramid, you see the third tier issues, issues that really don't matter. We can argue about it all day long, and it's fine, right? Well, how you view Jesus' return, when, when that's going to happen, the timeline, it doesn't really we believe that Jesus is going to return and make all things new, right? We believe that. But the, the timetable on that, I don't care. Immediately above that, we have other issues that seem to divide churches more than anything else. And it's these issues that we kind of stake 
our claims on and we, we, we dig our heels into the ground and, and we say there is no room for disagreement on that. Those are second tier issues. And at the top of this pyramid, we have the primary or essential issues. The, those issues that if you do not believe them, you are no longer a Christian. The virgin birth, the trinity, the exclusivity of Christ, that the Bible is God's word. Now, if you can imagine this pyramid, at the very top of the very top, you have the gospel. The truth of us being able to be reconciled to the Father. That God created all things for his glory, and God shines the, the gl most glory when Jesus came to become incarnate, to be with us, to take on flesh and to live and to die for us. And when we put our faith and hope and trust in Christ, God gets so much glory. This is the peak of what we believe. In other words, if you don't get this right, you are not a follower of Christ. And the readers of this passage would have understood what Paul is saying. They would have remembered, at least the Jewish readers would have remembered Isaiah 53, the prophecy of Christ coming, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Since I've been here over two years, my aim, especially when we're dealing with difficult passages, is to say that there is room for disagreement inside of a church. That interpretations that I have could very well be wrong and, and theological frameworks that I have could very well be wrong. And as much as my flesh wants everyone to do and believe exactly how I do, right? We all want that, right? We all want everyone to agree with us. What I've seen, what I've seen in Scripture and what I've seen in my life as a pastor is that there is a whole lot of gray. There is a whole lot of issues in Scripture that we see that, that God-believing, God-fearing, gospel-centered Christians can come to a different conclusion. I want us to be able to disagree and still be united. And here's the question, united around what? Look at, verses, look at verse 4, really. Verse 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what we unite ourselves around. The truth of what Christ has done for us. Paul, whether he realized this or not, was creating a creed for us. I'm reminded of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Catholic meaning little c, not big c Catholic. Paul didn't make up the gospel. That people who have been deconstructing their faith have really been going after a lot of what Paul says because they have problems with the way that Paul deals with things. But the truth is, Paul didn't make up the gospel. The gospel was given to Paul. He was merely proclaiming what God had done. 
Paul received this from God and he delivered it to the saints. His statement to the church in Corinth was to remember your first love. Remember the gospel that saved you. Remember the good news that Jesus Christ came to die for you, to rescue you, and to redeem you. For us today, my message is the same. Cling to your first love. Remember the gospel. Remember the love that God had in sending his son to die for you. Remember that Jesus fulfilled the law because you couldn't. Remember this love and mercy that God has given to you. Remember these things. And remember that this love and mercy doesn't start and stop with the cross. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 through 8. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. When Jesus arose from the dead, he didn't just leave. He appeared to people, starting with the disciples, and then 500, including Paul. Paul mentioned that some of those who had seen Jesus had already died, and so, but he says, listen, there are still more that are still living. So go talk to them. Church in Corinth, if you've got questions about what you saw or about what people have seen, go talk to them. In other words, there's no possibility that 500 people were hallucinating. There's no possibility that they saw a ghost. That's how some people have tried to wiggle out of this. Just after the resurrection, it was just an apparition of Christ. It's not true. They saw Jesus, the risen Christ. And Paul is saying, ask around to see if I'm telling you the truth or not. Now here's the next thing that we got to think about. What does Paul say when he, what does he mean when he says that he was untimely born? This is a difficult part of the passage to translate. Um, but what I see it as is that according to Paul, there was no real reason why he should have become a Christian. Nothing in his life would lead anybody to believe that he would come day, one day come to know Christ. And I think about my own family, and I think about your families, and, and I think about how those who raise their children in the fear and love of the Lord, those who read scripture with them, those who pray with them, those who attend church with them, those who maybe even catechize their children, all of those things that we do for our kids is to raise them up to know the Lord well. So it really should come as no surprise when our children, when we've ingrained in them the truth of the gospel since their birth, it should be no surprise when they do come to know Christ. But that wasn't Paul's story. Paul was a Jew's Jew. He was educated and trained to become a leader to the Jewish people. And later he became a persecutor of the church. He sought to, to kill believers, followers of Christ, people who had given their lives to Jesus. Paul tried to kill them. Nothing in his family background would ever lead anybody to think, well, that's a guy who's going to know Jesus one day. But that's exactly what happened. Paul was a recipient of the, the grace and mercy of God when nothing else would have pointed anyone in that direction. Now, we've seen a few things already. We've seen the truth of the resurrection. We've seen the content of the gospel. And we've seen the evidence of the resurrection. Finally, Paul gives his own testimony in verses 9 through 11. 
He writes this. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where the, the church had begun to, to divide and to split over their favorite leaders, their favorite teachers? There were likely some who just didn't connect with Paul. And I'll give you a, a statement that I'm sure that some people heard then or said then because I've heard it over years in ministry. Man, I'm just not being fed under Paul's teaching. Paul's teaching is just not giving me any nourishment. But, but Apollos, that Apollos, is he's good. Paul had his detractors, every leader does. Go to any organization, any organization where there are bosses or leaders and employees, and you're going to find people who really, really love their leaders and people who eh, don't really care, and then there's some who really don't like their leaders. It's just part of any organization, any church. And so we like to think, though, that everybody loved Paul. We like to believe because Paul did so much for the church. He, he planted churches. He proclaimed the gospel. He, he was the marketplace minister where he would go into the city center and share Christ with people. He suffered for the cause of Christ. But not everyone liked him. And so as the church in Corinth was reading this letter, they come to verse 9, and you can imagine what some people would have said. Well, Paul says he's the least of the apostles, and people said, well, yeah, he is. Of course he is. Paul almost anticipates that because his reaction, or at least the statement that he makes next was this. He says that he's unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. Paul was not some great leader. He was not a, a gifted speaker in the sense that people were just drawn to him. He wasn't probably very good looking. He wasn't uh, a super athlete. He wasn't known for his, his, his muscles and his athletic ability. But he wrote half of the New Testament. He planted numerous churches. How many people have come to know Christ because of Paul in person or because of Paul's writing? All because God used him. All because he was open for the call of God in his life and he was obedient to this. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul was a recipient of this grace and mercy, and he, he understood it. Paul would say to you today, there's nothing that I've done to earn the favor of God. It is only by the grace of God and the mercy of God that I've ever been able to even recognize what's happening here. That all of these gifts, all of the calling that God has given to me, it's only because of his grace that I can accomplish anything. You say, well, wait, he says I worked harder. Yes, because of that calling, because of that gospel mercy, because of that grace, Paul worked hard for the Lord. 
It spurred Paul to action. It's the same thing that happens to us is that when we are miraculously saved, when we experience the grace of God, what do we do? We go serve him. We go out into the world to become missionaries. You don't have to go down the, to another country. You can go down the street. You serve as a missionary where God has called you to be. And you work hard. You toil. You labor. You go sleepless nights because you know that you have a calling and that God has given you the gifts and the abilities to accomplish what he's called you to do. This is what Paul says here. Good works don't save anyone, but they are proof that we are saved. And then he continues his thought in verse 11. He says this, whether then it was I or they. Again, reminding us of what we saw in chapter 3 where people were picking sides. And Paul says, well, maybe I watered and maybe someone else planted, but, but it's God who gives the growth. He says this. He says, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. This reminds you of verse 1 as well. Whether it's I or they, so we preached the gospel and you believed. We were faithful in proclaiming the gospel to you. And God was good in his mercy towards you. This is the gospel that he preached. This is the gospel that we preach. This is not a gospel that Paul made up. This is the gospel that God has delivered to us. All who had seen the risen Christ preached a message that aligns with what we see in this passage. The truth of the resurrected Christ and the gospel message was at the core of what the church has taught for 2,000 years. This morning, the day after Christmas, I ask you this. Do you believe? Do you believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate? Do you believe that he was crucified, dead, and buried? Do you believe that he descended to the dead and that the third day he rose again from the dead? Do you believe that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty? Do you believe that he has come to judge the quick and the dead? Do you believe in the Holy Church, uh, uh, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins? Do you believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? For the Christian, this passage should build us up. Because we believe in the gospel that is timeless, this gospel that has been delivered once and for all time, this gospel of Jesus Christ that shows us there is no other way to salvation except through him. You and I will face death. We will face judgment. But Jesus died and rose again, showing that death and the grave have no victory. That the will of God will defeat it and has promised it. This must empower us to be like Paul, to preach the gospel to the entire world with boldness and assurance because victory has already been accomplished. Now, if you're not a believer, this passage should cause you some concern. It should make you wiggle a little bit. It should make you uncomfortable. You're hearing the truth of the resurrection, and it should make you rethink things. Because if Jesus truly did rise from the dead, he is more than just a teacher. He's more than just a good guy. He's more than some magician. 
If Jesus did rise from the dead, he must be who he says he is. And Jesus says that he is God. We can go through all of the Old Testament passages where God says, I am, and then Jesus comes and says, I am, saying that he is God. C.S. Lewis says this in, in our questions where we're asking ourselves to decide what we think about Jesus. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So who do you think Jesus is? This is what decides your fate. Is Jesus a lunatic? Is he the devil or is he God incarnate? This is the question that every single one of us have to, have to stare at and think about. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus just a man? Can we go dig his body up and find his bones? Or is he right now sitting at the right hand of the Father? Would you pray?